West Legal Ed Center and Celeste Attorneys Ed Center would like to welcome you to 11 Months In, What You Need to Know About GDPR Scope and Enforcement Actions. Use the Participation tab to send a question to our presenter. Program materials can be found under your Supplements tab. Thank you for joining us. I'll turn the floor over now to Odia Kagan. Odia? Thank you. Um, hello, everybody. Good morning or good afternoon, wherever you may be located. Uh, I am Odia Kagan. I am a partner and chair of GDPR Compliance and International Privacy at Fox Rothschild. And in this role, I help companies, uh, U.S.-based companies and multinationals with their GDPR compliance as well as U.S. state compliance. Uh, and the new California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, the program today, I would like to walk through some of the new developments that have occurred since GDPR came into effect uh, almost 11 months ago. Um, as, as you know, uh, GDPR came into effect on May 25th of 2018, and at that point, uh, it is uh, a big game changer, especially for companies that are located in the U.S. The reason being that uh, even though there was a pre-existing privacy regime in Europe uh, for even um, for over 20 years in some countries and some member states, even as early as 1970, there was a privacy regime, uh, and GDPR is not does not greatly change a lot of those aspects. One of the big things that uh, happened is the extraterritorial jurisdiction of GDPR and the fact that it applies to companies that are not located in the EU, that have no boots on the ground in the EU at all. And that is one very big difference from um, the pre-existing directive. Um, I will, so, so I'll start by uh, a, an anecdote that isn't in the material, so I will, I will read it to you. And this, this uh, appeared in Twitter feeds recently. Um, it goes like this. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is in contravention of Article 4 of the General Data Protection Regulation. And that is one of the myths that was um, when it's sort of a joke slash myth on what GDPR actually does as opposed to the myths about what GDPR does. So let's start with the one big aspect that is um, bothering or concerning a lot of companies that are in the U.S. Does GDPR apply to me? So GDPR has a very broad extraterritorial jurisdiction. There are basically three options for a company, um, even if it's based in the U.S., to be brought in scope under GDPR. So what's behind door number one? Door number one is, do you have an establishment in Europe? An establishment in Europe could be if one of the things that is most common is if you have a branch or a subsidiary in a member state, um, if you have, uh, so that is one of the easy ways to come in scope. If you have 
However, that's not the only way to do it. If you have any real or effective activity, even one that's minimal, it might be enough. So what's not enough? It is not enough to just have a website that is accessible from Europe. If there is no other um, element that connects that website to Europe, then you, that will not by itself put you in scope. However, uh, some activity in Europe could be very minimal and per a new guideline, which is what this component of the webinar is based on, um, a guideline from the European uh, Data Protection Board, which is the regulator responsible for advising um, on the GDPR application. And these are guidelines from November of 2018. They are still in draft form uh, and subject to consultation. Per these guidelines, even one employee could be enough to fall under the establishment in the EU prong and put a company in scope for GDPR. The question that you want to ask yourself is, is there, and the term used is an inextricable link between the activities of your presence in the EU and the processing of the data that you carry out? Um, as I said, it could be just one employee because it needs to be a stable arrangement and um, if the employee, and, and that's involved in the processing. So if the employee has a role involved in the data processing, that could be enough for an establishment. So I'll give you an example, one of the examples that the European Data Protection Board uses when analyzing this. So this is example number one in the guidelines. A car manufacturing company with headquarters in the U.S. has a fully owned branch and office located in Brussels, overseeing all of its operations in Europe, including marketing and advertising. In this situation, as we said, branch or subsidiary is a classic form of establishment. So the branch is a stable arrangement which exercises real and effective activities um, in light of the activity carried out by the manufacturer because it oversees all of its operations in Europe, including marketing and advertising. As such, that Belgian branch, the branch in Brussels, would be an establishment in the union within the meaning of GDPR and put you in scope for, um, and put you in scope under uh, Article 3.1, which is the establishment prong. What happens if you are a U.S.-based company and you process only U.S. data, but you want to use an EU-based service provider and EU um, for one of the components of your processing? Under those circumstances, that in itself will not put you in scope for GDPR. So the fact that you only use an EU service provider but you're not using any EU data is not sufficient in itself. However, one thing that is um, that could happen based on the guidelines is that the your service provider may require you to sign a data processing agreement that protects their rights um, that, that, that they're obligated to do in order for them to comply, even though you don't have any obligation under GDPR. If you are um, based 
in the EU and you have a non-EU processor, then you have to regulate that relationship by a certain contract. All right, so an example of, another example of practical application. French company based in France developed a car sharing application that is exclusively addressed for companies in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And the service is only available in those countries, <clears throat> but all personal data processing activities are carried out in France by the company. So in this situation, even though we are not dealing with EU data, because the company that is handling the data is physically in the EU, it is established in the EU, it is an EU-based controller, then even though the data is non-EU data, the processing is carried out in the context of the activities of an establishment of a controller in the union, that's the term in the law, in the context of an activities of an establishment. So even though it is non-EU data, it is still subject to GDPR because the company itself is based in Europe. On the other hand, if you, so, and then another example, if you have, say, a pharmaceutical company, but, but let's say for this example, if you were in a U.S.-based company targeting car sharing, targeting at these three companies, three countries, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, non-EU data, non-EU data controller, then it would not be um, an establishment in the EU and you would not fall under in scope. Then example number five in the European um, Data Protection Board guidelines, if you're a pharmaceutical company headquartered in Stockholm in Sweden, that's an EU country, uh, has located all of its data processing agreements for its clinical trials in its branch in Singapore. In this situation, it's a branch which is not a legal entity, so it's not a subsidiary, it's a branch. And the Stockholm company determines all of the purpose and means of the data processing, but the processing is carried out by a branch in Singapore. In this situation, once again, even though the actual processing is carried out in Singapore, not Singapore, non-EU, it is carried out in the context of activities of the Stockholm-based pharma company, which again is a data controller established in the union, and therefore GDPR will apply. So door number one, do you have an establishment in the EU? Do you have a subsidiary? Do you have a branch which is not a legal entity? Do you have an agent or distributor or sales representative? Do you have an employee in the EU? And under all of those circumstances, you want to check whether or not there is an inextricable link between your processing activities um, and, and, your, and your other activities. So if it's in the context of your activities in the EU, in which case GDPR will apply. Option number two is the option that applies most often to US-based companies in connection with GDPR. That is behind door number two, offering products or services to individuals in the EU. So now to one of the biggest myths about GDPR. GDPR is not a law that protects EU citizens. The citizenship is not a relevant factor. Um, it is not even residence that is a relevant factor. The relevant 
criterion is that you need to be physically located in the EU at the time that goods or the services are offered or the, your behavior is monitored, but that's door number three, which we'll be discussing in a second. So the first question to ask is, are you, are the individuals that you are dealing with in the EU? Example number eight from the um, European Data Protection Board guidelines. Startup company established in the US, completely US-based, doing business online, no business presence or establishment in the EU. Provides a city mapping application for tourists. So the application processes personal data about the location of people that are using the app. And in order to do targeted advertising, so location-based targeted advertising, which is a very big, um, uh, which is very big right now. The application is available for tourists while they visit, visit New York, San Francisco, Toronto, London, Paris, and Rome. In this situation, the U.S. company does not have an establishment in the EU, so we can rule that out. But via this application, it is offering services to individuals in the EU because it is offering that the services are targeted for London, Paris, and Rome. And therefore, the, this processing is in the context of offering products or services to individuals in the EU. So these are individuals in the EU, even though they are tourists. They could be U.S. residents that are tourists in Paris, but since you are targeting the collection of data to people that are physically present in Paris when you are collecting the data, that is individuals in the EU. So the second question is, when is what is offering? And this is a question that was a big, um, a big point of controversy, and some of it was settled in the new guidelines. So what does it mean to offer services? In order to do that, per the guidelines, you need to have some sort of intention. You need to have some sort of a tar targeting of the individual. So some of some criteria that are uh, taken together, possibly not just by themselves, would could put you in, um, could say that you are offering products or services in the EU and therefore um, and therefore in scope. So one of them is if you have marketing and advertising campaigns that are directed at an EU country audience. So in the examples that we just talked about, right, there was one of them that was basically targeted towards people in, um, in Paris or in London or uh, other places. So if your advertising or marketing campaigns are specifically mentioning EU locations, um, and targeted towards that. You have a campaign that just rolls out in London or rolls out in Paris. If you mention on your website um, things where it's obvious that you will be um, going to or calling from an EU country, so it's obvious that you are you know, targeting the people that are going to go there. If you use an EU or member state top level domain name, so you, not only do you have your .com website, but you also have a .fr, a .de, uh, a .uk. That is another indication. Another one is customer testimonials. If you mention, um, if you have testimonials 
from uh, individuals in EU member states, that is also an indication that that is your target market, that you want to highlight reviews from those countries. If you use an EU language or EU currency, and that is also, most of these are very fact-based and some of them are not sufficient by themselves. In, in this situation, for example, if you have a website that is in Spanish, that in itself is not sufficient because obviously Spanish is spoken in other countries. Same goes for France, et cetera, but it could be one of the um, factors. The other regarding currency, you take European EU currency, but if you also take every other currency, that in itself may not be sufficient, right, because it would not it be a clear sign of targeting. Another factor is if you um, deliver goods into the EU. If you actually physically deliver them into European addresses, that is also a factor that could be uh, considered. So as we said, um, the in order to offer, there needs to be some indication from your um, consumer-facing materials, your marketing materials, your advertising. Theoretically, if it comes to it um, and is adjudicated, also your internal uh, correspondence, right? If there is a way that you are thinking about targeting going after the EU market specifically, then that is offering. Um, something important to say is that, it, is one, uh, you don't need to get paid for the service in order for it to be a service. Consideration is not needed and it could be for free. Um, a website that is accessible in Europe, as we said, is not enough. One point that was not highlighted in the guidelines and could be uh, and, and could come up is what do you do if you already have a big existing customer base? So if you're delivering to them, that falls under it. But if you actually have just few users, um, um, how does that factor in? Um, and if, if you don't specifically target. One example to illustrate this aspect. Uh, a website that is based and managed in Turkey offers services for creating and shipping family photo albums. The website is available in English, in French, in Dutch, and in German, and payments can be made in euros or in sterling. The website indicates that photo albums can only be delivered by post mail in the UK, France, and other countries, and Germany. So in this situation, as we said, right, the website is, so first of all, editing and printing and making the photo albums, that's a service, right? So that is a service. The fact that the website is available in four languages, all of which are European languages, um, they are accepting just sterling and euro, and they are delivering it in the post to European countries, that all of these together demonstrate an intention of the, on the part of the Turkish website to offer the services to individuals in the union, and it would be subject to Article 3.2 of GDPR. In this situation, it's important to note that there is another obligation imposed by GDPR of appointing a local representative in the EU if you have a processing that is more than occasional uh, and so that obligation would apply in this situation. Uh, it would be different if the website was directed, and there's another example in the guidelines 
of a university that has a graduate program. And the graduate program, um, there, is, there are two languages in there, German and um, English. And it is not targeted towards students, um, specifically in the EU. It's just in English and in German. And that is not deemed to be enough. But if, it, if there is specific targeting for them, then that could be enough. And that brings us to the third option, which is monitoring or tracking of individuals in the EU. So monitoring or tracking is basically uh, is something that you do through cookies, trackers, pixels, all sorts of online ways of passively collecting information. Uh, it could be uh, geolocalization activities for marketing. It could be online tracking through cookies and fingerprinting. It could be. It could also be um, CCTV. It could be um, wearables. It could be personalized diet and health analytics services. Um, and it could be behavioral advertising. Uh, the interesting thing to note about this is that even though, not even though, unlike with the offering of the products and the services, which requires a targeting and requires an intent to target individuals in the EU, monitoring or tracking does not require intent. And so if it is determined that this is monitoring or tracking, then you would fall into scope. Not every uh, collection of data that includes data collected from, your, from people in Europe is monitoring or tracking. You need to also consider what is the, um, what is done with the information uh, later and what is it used for. And so, but behavioral, something to note is that behavioral advertising, which is something that is very um, prevalent right now, uh, could be deemed to be monitoring or tracking. And so that's something to think about uh, when you are deploying that on your website. If you do fall in scope um, and you do not have an established in the EU, then you need to have a local representative uh, that is going to be a point of contact for the data protection authorities uh, in Europe. So that is, um, that's one uh, recent guideline, one of the recent guidelines that came out of, uh, of Europe. There is another set of guidelines that came out very recently, and these are also in draft form, that talk about the, um, one of the legal bases of GDPR, which is something that whether or not uh, the processing activities are necessary for the um, performance of a contract. Because that's one of, that is something that's often used when you have a contract with the, with the individual. Um, the guidelines that came out uh, just a few days ago um, some of the key takeaways are um, interesting for companies. Uh, one of them is the European Data Protection Board very much highlighted the importance of the processing that is carried out as part of the contract to be uh, fair in accordance with the fair and lawful principle under GDPR. That's important because 
that interpret one is very it's a little vague to figure out what that is. It's not very set in stone, but it really makes it um, it makes you need to think about when you are looking at what you're collecting information from to make sure that the the reason that you're collecting it, the purpose, and how you're disclosing it doesn't make people go, huh, how, how did that happen with my information? And so the, the board also says that you actually need to specify the purpose in the contract. So just the fact that you state that something, just the fact that there is a contractual clause about it doesn't make it necessary for the contract. Meaning just because it's in the contract doesn't make it necessary and make you able to use it. In order for something to be necessary, it needs to cover only situations where the processing is objectively necessary to carry out a purpose that is integral to the delivery of a service. So for example, um, something is generally would be necessary for a contract if you, for example, process payment details in order to charge for a service, right? Somebody orders a product, you process their credit card details, that's necessary for the contract because otherwise you cannot get paid and you cannot, you will not be able to perform the contract. Uh, if you send formal reminders about outstanding payments as part of a payment plan, that is also necessary because it's, again, to facilitate the payment. Um, in some situations, the European Data Protection Board is willing to consider that personalized content is something that could be necessary for the performance of a contract. Um, content personalization. However, um, it also lists a number of situations that necessary for the performance of a contract will not be applicable. One of the, those are unsolicited marketing. So unsolicited marketing is not necessary to perform your service. It is just in order to enhance the service and um, in order to enhance the service and have other prospects for the service. Um, collecting organizational metrics relating to the service. Again, analytics to improve your product. Um, processing to improve a service or develop a new function. Processing for fraud prevention or behavioral advertising. None of these are things that the board is willing to accept as necessary for the performance of a contract. So now that we have covered some of the um, recent guidelines on, um, that are, have been promulgated by the regulators, uh, we will move on to a couple, some of the recent enforcement actions that have come out of the different regulators and what we can learn from them. Um, before that, I want to make an announcement um, in connection with the CLE credits. In order to comply with New York regulations, attorneys looking for CLE credit in New York will need to be able to provide a code. I will read this code twice and only twice and cannot repeat it or email it to you, so please make note of it. The New York State code number is O as in Octave, K as in Kitty Cat, uh, 29684 once again, the New York State code number is OK29684118. 
8819. All right, so the regulators have spoken. And um, in the past 11 months, there have been uh, a lot of uh, enforcement actions that, and that have come out of the various data protection authorities. Uh, they, there is still going, to, this is only the beginning because the regulators are still dealing with a big backlog and are processing through the different requests. Um, and so more to come, but there is, there's still enough out there that we can learn some, we can have some lessons learned from. Um, the first isn't the, the first one I want to talk about isn't really a an enforcement action. It's more guidance. It's taking out of the Europe, the English uh, Data Protection Authority, the ICO. It talks about the right of erasure and backups. Um, I have been asked this question repeatedly by clients when they are looking and digging into how to respond to the right of erasure if they get a request from a user, from a patient, from a customer. Please delete my information. So then you go through the process of, you know, does an exception apply? Do I need to delete? And then if they want to delete, the question then comes up on, well, what about my backups? Because backups, especially when they are outsourced and sometimes they are inaccessible and sometimes they are still in tapes and not online, make the compliance very difficult. Uh, the, uh, the document from the ICO basically said, if you do the following things in order to make sure that the data isn't used for what, for things it's not supposed to be used for, and is not really accessible and able to be manipulated, then we are not going to um, prioritize this for enforcement in connection with the right of erasure. And those things are the following. Number one, this data really needs to be beyond use. It needs to be inaccessible. Let's say a backup tape that you are not accessing. Something important to note is that you want to make sure that information relating to somebody that filed an erasure request that you complied with and is a copy of which is found in the backup, that there needs to be some sort of technical, um, you want to put some note or technical uh, setting that makes sure that if you have some incident where you need to restore your files for backup, that the file that is supposed to be deleted won't be restored and therefore breach the deletion request. So that is part of putting it immediately beyond use. The other is that you need to only retain it for an appropriate amount of time and delete it as soon as possible. So you wanna delete it um, in the next deletion or destruction cycle, and those are 30 days or 60 days, they vary. But you want to delete it as in immediately in the next cycle. And the other is that in the, for as long as you are retaining this information, be it the 30 days or the 60 days, et cetera, you need to make sure that you are still protecting it from an information security perspective, um, the technical and organizational measures that you are um, protecting it in a way that is adequate so that it won't be compromised. A couple of enforcement actions out of Germany. So one, um, one, take, one aspect of GDPR is that you need to apply appropriate technical and organizational measures 
to protect the data, and those need to be adequate and, and, and in relation to the nature of the data. Um, one company, it's a social media uh, company in Germany, um, had a data breach incident, and it was discovered that it stored the um, passwords of the users in clear text, and this affected over 800,000 users. Um, uh, other situations with fake social media companies and um, passwords being stored uh, have, have been in the media recently. And so this is one thing where um, a couple of takeaways here. Number one, uh, storing passwords in clear text is a bad idea and could lead to a lot of issues, especially because uh, hackers and um, bad agents usually use that to usually take advantage of the fact that people uh, repeat the passwords in different websites and take the stolen passwords and try to use them for other websites. And this has been done successfully. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that passwords are very sensitive and don't keep them in clear text. The other interesting takeaway here is um, the company in this situation, even though it was passwords in clear text, and even though it was a lot of people uh, the fine they received was relatively low. <clears throat> it was 20,000 euros only. And the reason for that is an important takeaway for companies um, that are, <clears throat> excuse me, handling, that are in, um, faced with a potential enforcement action or a breach because those, um, those are uh, very difficult to completely avoid even though that's the goal. So the, the issue here is the cooperation and the level of commitment that the company demonstrated in the aftermath of the event. They contacted the Data Protection Authority directly and quickly. They informed the users immediately and gave them the full information in compliance with the obligations under GDPR for doing so. Um, they cooperated with the investigation that they were under. And then they also took the steps necessary to remediate the situation and in, improve their IT setup, which was at the root of these issues, even though it was at a great cost to them and um, it was a seven-figure uh, amount of, uh, for them to rectify the problem. So that's something, that is something to think about um, going forward. Um, the other enforcement action talks about something that seems mundane, but is actually very important. Um, as you know, between when you are a data controller and subject to GDPR, and you engage the services of a service provider handling the data for you or some aspect of it, a so-called data processor under GDPR, you are required under GDPR to have a data processing agreement that is compliant with the requirements of Article 28 of GDPR. That is the DPA or the data processing agreement. In this situation, pursuant to a complaint from a customer, um, this is what happens most often, is a complaint from a customer or a competitor and that is filed with the Data Protection Authority uh, saying that this company, German-based controller, uh, did not have a data processing agreement with its um, Spanish data processor. And in this situation, just the very fact that this document did not exist uh, resulted in a fine of 5,000 euros 
for that document. So that's something to keep in mind because of course, a number of reasons. Number one, because uh, even, even this particular one violation could be 5,000 euros per missing data protection, data processing addendum. But more importantly, the purpose of these, uh, these agreements is to make sure, set out the relationship between the controller and the processor, uh, set out what the processor needs to do and how the processor will help the controller complies. So for example, in a situation where there is a, an erasure request or an access request and the, uh, the data protection and the, and the processor is not able to comply, then the controller is going to have an issue with compliance themselves. And um, finally, the right of access in the employment context. And this is something that is very important um, for a number of reasons. Number one, the data subject access as part of the data subject rights generally is the, the topic of, is the subject of the greatest number of complaints that have been filed pursuant to GDPR. So the most complaints that the data protection authorities uh, have gotten per the reports that they've been publishing are in connection with data subject rights and not, as we would think, data breaches. So that's one reason to think about this seriously. The other is um, those of you that may um, be subject to the California Consumer Privacy Act uh, that, that is going into effect in 2020 or other state privacy laws that might um, be passed by then and about a number of states are going after in the states of California. This right of access, uh, even in the employment context, at least for now, is something that is granted under CCPA, so it's something to think about. In this situation, an employee uh, requested access to their HR file and they wanted access both to their HR file and to um, the company's whistleblower program. In this situation, the court said, yes, the company has to provide the individual with a copy of their personal data in their HR file. You need to provide, the employer needs to provide comprehensive information and copies of performance and behavioral data upon request. And so this is something to think about when you have um, files with evaluation, um, evaluation files and performance reviews and things like that, um, something to think about is that those could be the subject of an access request and would need to be disclosed to the employees. And also that the employees um, have the right to inspect um, the whistleblower program. Another important aspect of this in particular enforcement action is the court said that the company needs to provide actual copies of the different pieces of information, meaning copies of the emails, copies of the performance reviews, et cetera, which is interesting because until now, some of the prevalent um, thoughts have been that a summary or a PDF like um, digest would be enough, whereas here the court is basically saying we need to provide actual copies. And that is something to think about because in order to comply within 30 days, you need to know where all of the different pieces of data that you have about your employees are located. Um, are they all in one centralized place? Do you have third-party providers that handle HR data 
Do you have a payroll provider, a benefits provider? Where are the performance reviews? Where is um, uh, other? Is there is there a wellness program that you um, that you run? So you want to know where all the pieces of information are, and be able to provide them to the employee in a way that is usable. Uh, another enforcement action came out of Denmark. Denmark, this is a taxi company, and the taxi company uh, is in, like an app where you order um, where you order a cab. The cab, the, the taxi app collected information of people, their name, their telephone number, and obviously all of the information related to the different rides, the pickups and the drop-off points, etc. Um, they basically stated that um, they need the information for about two years, and after two years, they um, delete the names of the individuals. Pursuant to a complaint, the Data Protection Authority said that this system does not work. Uh, removing the name by itself is not sufficient when you still have a telephone number with all of the right information because that is something that you can track the person, go back to the individual, and that makes the individual an identifiable individual, and an identified or identifiable individual is one whose personal data is protected. So that's not an anonymous, if you have the phone number still there, that is not anonymized and it is still under GDPR. And therefore, you are keeping the information for too long. You said so yourself, company, um, you need it only for two years, but you're actually retaining it for five. The company then said, but we can't do that because the way that our system is set up is that all of the individuals are identified through phone numbers. And the um, Data Protection Authority said, that's not a really good enough reason. The fact that this is the way your software operates and your software is, is not reason enough, you should spend the money necessary to amend the, um, to amend your program, your software, and make it so that you can use anonymized IDs so that you're not using identified information. And finally, the Data Protection Authority also said that you have to document your procedures for deletion, that you want to make sure that it's, um, you are, that you make, make sure that it was carried out correctly, you, have, you follow up on it, you make sure that reloading of previously deleted data does not exist. That's what we said before with the backup. Make sure that you're not restoring some backup things that need not be restored and logging deletions in the system. So that's something that is important. Um, another situation where the Data Protection Authority uh, said that the fact that something costs a lot of money, so you see a trend here, both in Germany and in Denmark, and this is, we're gonna talk about Poland, three situations where either the cooperation or the very compliance is not is the fact that doing so would cost the company a considerable amount of money in millions of euros is not a deterrent for the data protection authority to say, hey, that doesn't matter. You still need to comply. In Poland, um, the, in Poland, there was a case of a company where that used information that was publicly available. So the information was publicly available. Um, 
even though it was publicly available, not as necessarily as the choice of the individual. So these are publicly available databases that the, a company uh, basically scraped from these databases and used it for uh, its own purposes. The court said, so first of all, I mean, the Data Protection Authority said this. First of all, under GDPR, even if information is public, it is still personal data and so subject to the protections applicable to personal data. That's number one. As part of those obligations that you have for your personal data, you need to give people disclosure about what's going on with their data. And that is under Article 13 and in this situation, Article 14 of GDPR, which is situations where you collect information from uh, about individuals, not directly from them. Under those situations, under GDPR, you need to follow up and give people the full disclosure of what is going on with the information, right? What is the data? Um, how is it obtained? What are you going to do with it? What's the legal basis, et cetera? In this situation, the company did two things. Number one, the people that it had email addresses for, it emailed them the notice. The people that it did, and also it posted the notice on its website. Data Protection Authority said, that is not sufficient. When you give the disclosure, the disclosure needs to be done in an active manner. You need to inform the people without them having to participate in enabling their own notification. So you can't require people to go and find your website in order to read the notice. You need to give them the notice. And you guys already did that. For everybody that had an email, you emailed them actively. So why would a website notice be sufficient for all of the rest of the people? And the company said, well, for the rest of the people, all we had was phone numbers or postal addresses, and it would have cost us a lot of money. They estimated 8 million euros to notify the people either by phone or to send by post. And the Data Protection Authority basically said, that is not a reason to uh, not comply with your legal obligations, you should have given an active notice to these people. Excuse me. So now we move on to another aspect of um, another aspect of GDPR related to um, information security. This is a decision out of um, Portugal, and. It, it talks about uh, access rights. So in this situation, this is a hospital, and it turns out that the hospital had user profiles of doctors, number one, that were no longer employed. So these are active users in the system that have rights to access personal data, presumably sensitive personal data relating to the health condition of individuals, and um, these were active uh, profiles, number one, of doctors that were not no longer employed. Number two, pro, uh, the, the users had access to a lot more information than that specific doctor would have needed even when they were employed. Consequently, this hospital was fined 400,000 euros for the failure to implement and enforce access limitations, what is called role-based access, which is a violation of the adequate protection information that you are required to implement under GDPR. Um, another, uh, another enforcement action, um, I, 
out of England is interesting because it was the first enforcement action out of England and was done against a company that has one, no presence at all in the EU. It is a Canadian-based company that is a data aggregator that processed data of UK individuals on behalf of political organizations and supplied them with targeted advertisements on social media. So in this, a couple of takeaways from this situation. In this situation, what the Data Protection Authority said was, here you have a legal basis issue. You process personal data in a way that people were not aware of for purposes they wouldn't have expected and without a lawful basis, and there was no disclosure. This, this is an interesting takeaway for data brokers. The situation of invisible processing and processing by data brokers, especially in connection with behavioral advertising and especially in connection with political um, campaigns, is one that is increasingly getting a lot of attention from the regulators and is something that is also addressed by the California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, which also pertains to data brokers. Um, there is a large emphasis, and this is something for you to think about when you are do, handling your data practices. If you are a first party and you have direct connection with your consumers, it's really important to disclose what you are doing with the information and to make it clear that this is actually what is happening with the information. So what the fact that you collected the information, uh, the purpose, what are you doing with it? And with the purpose, you really need to be very specific about what is going, about what you're doing with the information, especially if there's sensitive, if there's sensitive things like location. If you're using it for targeted advertising, you need to say that um, and not use vague uh, expressions like improve the service or enhance the experience, but really say what you're doing. And also um, providing disclosure of the practices and making sure that this is, reaches the individual. This is much more of a challenge if you are an intermediary or a data broker, but it's something that is um, important to think about ways to address because it is getting a lot of attention from the different regulators. The couple of takeaways that are important in this situation are uh, the, the first enforcement action was against a company not based in Europe, but based in Canada. And the other is this company did not actively do anything with the data after May 25th. Nevertheless, this was a, um, an enforcement action uh, under GDPR. And the reason was that uh, the storage, the fact that they stored the information constitutes processing under GDPR and therefore falls in scope. So that's something to think about, that even if you have data that's lying around and you're not doing anything with it, and it is EU data, that is something that could be a liability for you if the processing is not buttoned up correctly, if you don't have a legal basis, if you didn't disclose, if you don't have the right consent, et cetera. And the more sensitive things that you are doing, if you're engaged in behavioral advertising or marketing, especially in the context of, poli of political campaigns, the more sensitive it becomes. Um, there have been a number of enforcement actions out of France. And most of these have actually 
um, been closed since then, which is, shows us that uh, you can reach, uh, you can, it shows us a couple of things. Number one, you can remediate and change your practices and get to a point of adequate disclosure and consent that satisfies a data protection authority, even a strict one like the one in France. And, um, and the other is the emphasis that is given on disclosure and consent and on, again, location and behavioral advertising. One famous enforcement action is the one against Google, which is the one where Google received a 50 million euro fine. Uh, the takeaways in, in, from this one are as follows. First of all, privacy notices are just that. They are notices. They are not a contract with a data subject. And therefore, and, and, and so they're not enforceable. They are a notice. You are telling people what you are doing with the information. Number two, you need to disclose all of the pertinent aspects of the processing, and you want to do it up front, and you want to do it in one document as opposed to a number of documents that people need to piece together. And the important things that you need to say are, what is the information? What are the purposes that you're using it for? Who are the parties that you are sharing it with? How long you are keeping the information? Um, it is a bit challenging in these situations when you are sharing with a lot of parties how to configure your interface in a way where people know all of the third parties that you are sharing with so that they can actually give you informed consent. The Google decision actually specifically goes into how um, you, if you have a click down, a click that says more information, and inside that more information, you have pre-checked checkboxes, that is not active consent. Active consent is a click, and you cannot have pre-checked boxes that are hidden. And so that's something to think about and potentially to involve um, user experience people as well in order to, um, to achieve this. Because you want to do it in a very, very specific way, very plain language, one location, um, separate call-outs. So if you are using something for separate purposes, I am using, I would like to use your information to target advertising to your location. I would like to add you to my mailing list. I would like to add you to a third-party mailing list. All of these, you should have third, you should have separate call-outs in order to make the consent specific and informed. And of course, consent is something that should be revocable at any time. And uh, you need to make that the ability to revoke the consent just as easy as it was to uh, give the consent. A couple more um, enforcement actions in connection with or with cookies. Cookies are um, actually uh, governed by a couple of legal regimes, by GDPR and by um, the e-privacy directives, the so-called cookie directives, and will be that will be replaced with the um, e-privacy regulations. But now. What do you do in the meantime with cookies that collect personal data? An IP address is being personal data, could be MAC address, a device fingerprinting, the advertising ID, those could all be personal data under GDPR, and when collected by a cookie, 
they constitute processing of personal data. In this situation, there are um, opposing opinions from the UK and the Austrian regulator, which adds a little bit to the confusion. In both situations, there are newspapers that are being displayed in the EU online newspapers. And the option given by the newspaper is um, you can have cookies with the con you can have the content for free, but have cookies collecting some information about you. Or you can have a monthly membership of six dollars, and then you don't have the um, cookies being collected. And here you have two opposing opinions by UK and Austria. In the UK, um, the um, opinion was this is not true consent because it's not the same option. Um, cookies for free or no cookies for money is not the same. It should be cookies for free or cookies or no cookies for free. Um, the Austrian authority said, no, this is, this, is an, this is an actual choice that people can make. People can make the choice to pay the $6, and in that situation, the bargain of the cookies and not the cookies is a, um, is a fair one and is actually something that could be actual choice. And in the vein of the cookies, also a, a decision coming out of the Netherlands, talking specifically about any cookies, both personal data, but generally, um, is that you cannot uh, condition entry into a site on acceptance of cookies. So this is the so-called cookie wall. So you cannot um, have a banner that comes up and says accept cookies as a condition to go see the content behind it. You need to be asked for permission in advance for any tracking software that needs to be placed, and such as um, especially third-party tracking cookies and pixels and browser fingerprinting. Um, finally. Uh, talking a little bit more about the data processing ledger, which is another um, not often talked about aspect of GPR. It's a ledger that you record all of your data processing activities. In this situation, the Dutch um, Data Protection Authority uh, took 30 randomly selected companies in a number of different sectors and went to check their Article 30 compliance. So this is something that is not front-facing. Everybody is focusing on the privacy notice because that is front-facing. The article, this Article 30 ledger, um, is something that is an internal document. And so a lot of companies, even in Europe, have not finalized this. And so the Data Protection Authority did a sweep. The sweep was purposefully done in I and went and uh, tried to get the ledger and at a time where they um, knew that people may be on vacation and would be difficult to produce this document. So that's something also to keep in mind, the data processing agreement, the data processing ledger, even though they are internal, um, you want to keep in mind the requirement for accountability under GDPR, which is you need to be able to demonstrate that you comply with the principles of GDPR. And a final point on this, um, it deals with the right of access. This is a complaint that has not yet been resolved um, by NOYB, which stands for None of Your Business. It is a nonprofit organization 
that is dedicated to uh, advancing the rights of privacy in Europe, and filed a complaint against a number of leading streaming services and saying that uh, they need, if you get a request from an individual asking for access to the data, you need to disclose all of the data that you hold, not cherry pick the data, and you need the data to be presented in a user-friendly format that is easy for people to handle and that is clearly readable. If it is machine readable, you need to provide a code that enables people to read it. And you also need to provide a specific disclosure that talks about the data that you are producing, not a generic reference to your privacy notice, but rather here is the data that, we're, that we have about you. This is why, this is who we gave it to, this is how long we're keeping it, et cetera. And the complaint there was all of these leading streaming services were not giving the right disclosure and that could create an exposure. And finally, um, now it, obviously all of these enforcement actions that are making it very clear that there is a lot of compliance work that needs to happen. Something, something to keep in mind as you are on the path for compliance is what statements you're making on your website with respect to this compliance. Are you saying that you are GDPR compliant? Um, there is no uh, certification right now under GDPR, a GDPR certification for compliance. And therefore, if you are making a GDPR compliance statement, you want to be very careful that you are very, very sure that this is correct. Um, partly because, as a U.S.-based company, the FCC has said that it will enforce a false statement regarding GDPR compliance as a false or misleading statement um, and could be enforceable under the FCC Act. Another reason to pay attention to this is the increased enforcement under the EU-U.S. Privacy Shield, the certification that allows you to transfer EU to the U.S., and there is increased uh, investigations and enforcement, and if you are an EU-US Privacy Shield certified company, also any statements that you make about GDPR are going to be doubly um, subject to scrutiny. Um, so this concludes the webinar about GDPR 11 months in. There are a lot of the one big takeaway is this is a continuously changing landscape with guidelines continuously coming out and different enforcement actions, but very much shows that GDPR compliance is um, a marathon, it's not a sprint, it is an ongoing process, it is not an endpoint, and that you want to keep uh, going through in the path of your compliance, paying attention to the things that the regulators are highlighting, like the data subject rights, um, advertising, um, and, uh, and, and those types of things. Thank you very much.